0: our final reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and I invite you to turn there at this time. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and I too will be reading from the ESV. Matthew 5, verse 1, as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's word? are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. So the Beatitudes, the famous Beatitudes, one of the most carefully crafted passages in the Gospels, according to one scholar, and Jesus' first words in his Sermon on the Mount. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have read this passage, have studied it, heard it preached, taught. But what is your take, I guess, on the Beatitudes? To back up a little, Jesus has been baptized. He's begun to gather disciples. He's preached. He's taught. He's healed throughout Galilee. And now he ascends a mountain and he utters nine blessings in the presence of his disciples and the crowds who are gathered. What is Jesus doing with these nine blessings or beatitudes? I mean, what is he really thinking? Is Jesus encouraging us to become poor in spirit? Is he encouraging us to mourn, to be meek, to make ourselves hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Is he urging us, in other words, to put on these attitudes promising to reward us if we do? Is Jesus saying that by being merciful, by by being pure in heart, being peacemakers or even persecuted, that by these things we'll inherit God's kingdom? As though these were conditions for entry or admission. What I'd like to suggest this morning... Is that the Beatitudes have nothing to do with human traits which earn God's favor? I'll say that again. The Beatitudes, friends, have nothing to do with human traits which earn God's favor. In other words, they don't present us with entrance requirements for the kingdom of heaven. These blessings rather uttered at the beginning of this sermon on the mount describe for us the nature of God's kingdom. They describe God's empire. The fulfillment and realization of God's will for all of creation. The beatitudes then say less about us and more, I think, much more about God. They, they tell us what God's rule is like, what a socio-political empire governed by the God of Israel is all about. And in so doing, I think, they encourage disciples, would-be disciples and whomever else is present, they encourage us to resist the empire of this world And to embrace the empire of Christ. When God's kingdom comes, writes one New Testament scholar, no one will have to be poor in spirit. No one will have to mourn or be meek or hunger for justice. In God's empire, he says everyone is merciful, pure in heart, committed to peacemaking, and willing to suffer for the sake of justice. That is what the Beatitudes are all about, and that's what I'd like to explore further this morning. So in just a minute, I'll say a word about the structure of these blessings, and we'll walk through the passage verse by verse. But before we do that, let's take a moment to pray. Would you now pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for this rich, beautifully crafted passage which begins this exploration of the Sermon on the Mount that will take us through the next few weeks. Thank you, Jesus, for, like Moses, ascending a mountain, like Moses preaching to a community, a group, and leading us into the promised land, Lord, into what you call eternal, abundant life. I pray that you would make us sensitive to your stirrings this morning and help us to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, our text this morning is Matthew 5, 1 through 12, um, but I'm really going to focus on uh, Matthew 5, 3 through 12. So for the most part, the the Beatitudes proper. Um, And there's debate about how these Beatitudes are structured, uh, but in looking at the the commentaries and reading some articles, I think what's going on here is that we have a kind of two stanza poem. So in verses 3 through 6, in Greek, we have exactly 36 words, the first four Beatitudes. Beatitudes. And then if you look at verses 7 through 10, the second set of four, you have exactly 36 words in Greek. And in poetry, the syllables and the word count matters so that there is a kind of rhythm. And you can even argue that they parallel each other, that there's a kind of relationship between this first unit of four and the second unit. So I think what we have here is a two stanza poem, at least from verse 3 through 10, These eight Beatitudes divided into two sections. You'll see, though, that in verse 11, we have a change from the third person, blessed are they, blessed are those, to the second person. And I tried to bring this out in my reading, blessed are you. It seems here that we have a ninth Beatitude in verses 11 through 12 that's based on the one just before in verse 10, but that makes it more personal. And Jesus concludes the Beatitudes looking directly at his disciples. So the first unit, the first stanza you could say, I want to call reversals for the unfortunate. And this language is derived from a wonderful article that I read that really helped me to make sense of these verses. So reversals for the unfortunate. The idea is that all four of these Beatitudes promise reversals to those who at that point were facing unfortunate circumstances. Now, just an anecdotal note here. Um, I actually wrote my, my master's thesis, almost 40 page paper, on the Galilean peasantry and how the, the people to whom Jesus preached were taxed oppressively by the Romans, the Herodians, and the temple in Jerusalem. They were struggling to eke out subsistence living. They were often pushed off of their small farmsteads and had to hire themselves out as laborers. And so the people whom Jesus is addressing here are are Galilean peasants, farmers, day laborers, who are struggling, struggling to just make ends meet. In the first beatitude, then, with that in mind, verse 3, we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Some argue that this beatitude sets the tone or serves as a kind of thesis statement for these first four. Uh, If you take a look at Luke's gospel, his version of the beatitudes, you'll just see blessed are the poor. No, in spirit. And it's hard to know which gospel came first, if if Luke is omitting, taking out those words, or if Matthew has added them. But it seems that what's going on here is Matthew, in his version, is talking about people who are economically poor, struggling financially, they're destitute, to the point that they've become poor spiritually. Spiritually even emotionally. In the Old Testament, you read of the poor who continue to trust in God. They're poor. Their their fortunes have have suffered in the world, but they continue to trust in in Yahweh. Here, what's in view are people who are poor and and think that God has abandoned them. Think that the world has forgotten them. It's almost as though they've, they've given up. They're poor in spirit. Now, Jesus says these people should consider themselves blessed, fortunate, favored. You could translate this, congratulations to the poor in spirit. Lucky, lucky are the poor in spirit. That's the idea. Because the kingdom of heaven exists for them. Now, the ESV goes with a possessive, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, But the language in Greek suggests that the the arrival of God's kingdom, the need for a new empire, is because people like this are suffering. It's as though God's God's new administration is is targeting these people, specifically those, those poor who have had everything taken from them, such that they are dejected and despondent, depressed. The kingdom of heaven has come to rescue and to bless such people. So they ought to consider themselves fortunate. We'll see moving on that the other Beatitudes in the first unit relate to this overarching statement. In verse 4, we then read, Blessed are those who mourn. Now, this this concept of, of mourning especially in the Old Testament, has to do with loss. Perhaps losing a loved one, but thinking of it nationally or corporately, think of Israel losing their land, losing their political independence, thinking about the promises God gave them being taken away, loss, grief, mourning. Blessed are those who, who mourn, The loss of these things, because, it says, they will be comforted, consoled, healed. Picturing these Galilean peasants, these Israelites, who were truly oppressed, were not experiencing the promises of God that we read in the Old Testament, we can imagine them poor in spirit and mourning mourning the loss of these things. It says, lucky are such people because when the kingdom fully comes, they will be comforted. The third beatitude in verse 5, it says, blessed or fortunate are the the lowly, the meek, the the little ones, you could say. This really means the underprivileged, uh, those those without power, without prestige, without clout, without wealth. This tracks with the previous two Beatitudes, those who are poor and who are mourning the loss of things, those who are invisible in society. Specifically the crowds that Jesus is addressing. They don't hold political office, they don't have the rights and authority. Like the high priest, like King Herod did, they they have been neglected and marginalized in society. It says, blessed are such people because they will inherit the earth. Now with this phrase, some think that the the meek here, the the disadvantaged, are those who have had their land taken away, the dispossessed. We think of Howard Thurman, a famous Baptist preacher who writes about Jesus and the, the dispossessed. Not only will they inherit their small family land when the kingdom comes, not only will they inherit Palestine, the land of Israel, it says they will inherit the earth, the whole world. <laughs> Finally, friends, the fourth beatitude in this first section comes in verse six. Blessed are the, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the underprivileged, blessed here are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. sometimes this is interpreted to mean individuals who long for moral righteousness, but in context here, considering the audience, considering the meaning of this word righteousness in the entire Bible, blessed are those who are starved of justice is really what it means. We're not being told to make ourselves hungry and thirsty for righteousness as though it were a a moral quality. Jesus is speaking to people who are hungry for righteousness, who are sick of being overly taxed, having to sell family members into slavery, having to hire themselves out and feeling invisible. They're longing for God's vindication, His deliverance. They're starving for justice. And what does it say will happen to them? When the kingdom of God fully comes. They will be engorged. I want you to think about Thanksgiving dinner. I want you to think about the fact that we eat Thanksgiving dinner at an unusually early point in the day. Why? Why do we do that? We get so bloated and so engorged, friends... That we need time to rest, time to sit on the couch. I want you to imagine people starving for justice, being full of it like that. It says, when the kingdom of God fully arrives, these people who are poor in spirit, who are mourning the loss of everything, who are invisible in society, starving for God to make things right, they will be full. Reversals for the Unfortunate. The second set of Beatitudes addresses a different set of characters. And in the article that I read, he calls this rewards for the virtuous. Now with this, I want us to think about people who are bringing about God's kingdom People joining with God to make His kingdom a reality. Such people are blessed because when God's kingdom becomes all that there is, it inevitably blesses all who are part of it, okay? I don't want us to imagine virtuous people being rewarded individually as though we have a form of works righteousness here. It's people who help bring about the kingdom of God which blesses the four parties we just talked about, those people will themselves be blessed, okay? The first one then comes in verse 7. The same word is used, blessed are, fortunate are, the merciful. This word merciful in in Matthew and elsewhere in Scripture has a lot to do with, with giving money to the poor. It's almost the same word giving alms, showing mercy. The idea here is not forgiving someone when they sin against you. There's there's a lot of other passages that talk about that. The idea here is to show mercy to specifically the people mentioned in verse 3, the poor in spirit. Reaching down and pulling them up and ministering to them, showing mercy. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Interesting. The only way I can make sense of this is that in our world, when when you have power and and some privilege, some resources, when you identify with the poor and stoop to that level and, and commit your life to them, you... So identify with them that in a lot of cases, the world rejects you like it rejects them. So in, in serving the poor, in being almost numbered among them, you too are then in need of mercy. <laughs> Does that make sense? So in reaching down, as, as Jesus reaches down to our humble state, he becomes numbered among human beings. And I think the the idea is that when we join with God in bringing about his kingdom, there is a clash with the world's kingdoms, and we will find ourselves in the position of those four characters I just mentioned. Keep that in mind as we move through the end. The next verse here, verse 8, says, Blessed are the pure in heart. This has to do with integrity, friends. Sincerity. This isn't so much the elimination of sinful thoughts or that kind of purity, moral purity. The idea is full, undivided commitment to God's kingdom purposes. The sincere in heart. Not the pretentious, not... Those who are only superficially committed, who are double-minded, but those who are fully in. Blessed are the pure in heart. It says, blessed are they because they will see God. How many people can you think of in the Bible who saw God face to face and lived to tell the tale? Six, seven maybe? But it says in the New Testament that when we become like him, when the kingdom fully comes, we shall see him face to face. What a blessing to see God face to face. To those who are fully committed to God's kingdom purposes, that will be given. The third beatitude in this section, rewards for the virtuous, comes in verse 9. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. This word peace often translates the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. Shalom has to do with comprehensive, global health, wellness, justice, and a kind of holistic state of fulfillment and joy. It's it's much more than having a fight with your neighbor, and making peace. This this compound word means creating shalom in all of the earth, joining with God and creating shalom. Blessed are the the shalom makers because they will be called sons or children of God. (laughs) Children of God in Scripture are called that because their behavior matches the behavior of their Father, their divine Father. Often when this phrase is used, then we see a kind of correspondence between God's heart and that of His people. The idea is that that God is always trying to create shalom in all the earth. And by working to bring about His kingdom... We are beginning to resemble God as his children. Finally, in verse 10, we have the final beatitude of this second unit. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of righteousness, on account of justice. Here we see the word repeated from verse 6 the last beatitude in the first unit, the last beatitude in the second, again, a sign of correspondence. Blessed are those who, in working with God to bring about His empire, are rejected by the world because, same phrase from before, the kingdom of heaven exists for them. So these beatitudes in the second unit They promise certain things to those who help bring about the reversals in the first four Beatitudes. Those who bring about God's kingdom will face certain rejection from the world, but in the end will be blessed by that kingdom. Finally, we have a ninth Beatitude in verses 11 through 12, where Jesus gets personal. He said, blessed are they, blessed are those, blessed are the, and now he says, blessed are you. And I'm sorry, friends, but it's blessed are y'all. It's y'all. You can picture the disciples in a kind of inner circle, and then the crowds behind them. Jesus stares right at his disciples. He says, blessed are you. You think I'm talking about all these other people. But if you join with me in bringing about my kingdom, you will be numbered among the poor in spirit, among those who mourn, among those who are meek, starved of justice. In trying to show mercy to the poor, you will need to be shown mercy. In in being committed to my kingdom, Project, you you won't see me for a time. You will face rejection, evil words against you. But he says, Rejoice and be glad, because this is exactly what has been happening to the prophets for centuries upon centuries. In this final comment, Jesus encourages the disciples to identify with the parties mentioned before, both those who work with God to bring about his kingdom and those who are rejected by the world and thus need that kingdom. The question then that I think that the Beatitudes answers is less, what are we to do to be seen with favor by God, and more, what is God's empire like? To quote that scholar again, he says, when God's kingdom comes, no one will have to be poor in spirit to mourn or be meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Everyone who is ruled by God is merciful, pure in heart, committed to peacemaking, and willing to suffer. For the sake of righteousness. The good news this morning, friends, is that God's empire is nothing like worldly empire. It's nothing like it. Worldly empire favors the rich and secure, not the poor in spirit. It favors the winners, not the losers. It favors the privileged, not the meek. The full, not the hungry, and the safe, not the persecuted. In the world of first century Palestine, and I would argue in 21st century America, these blessings sound utterly ridiculous. The values of America, to name a few, determination, confidence, power, property, wealth, are antithetical to the blessings we see here. Now, this is good news for people who are tired of the empire of this world, who are victims of it, yes, but also for those who are just disillusioned with it, distrustful of it, downright exhausted by it. The good news is that this empire... That empire will not last, but God's empire surely will. The kingdom of God, friends, the reign, the administration of Christ, will be the only empire that stands. It has already come into reality, and it continues to grow both in and as the church. And right now, this kingdom is less a place and is more a way of life. For us, it's living in allegiance to Christ, not to earthly rulers. It's living in pursuit of heavenly values, not in pursuit of earthly ones. And it's enduring with Jesus in a hostile place until his kingdom is all that there is. And I can assure you, friends, that will come. Let me close with this. The Beatitudes give us a glimpse into the heart of God's empire. This morning, I encourage you to be encouraged by the Beatitudes. And let us resist the empire of this world and embrace the empire of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for everything Moses has done for us, but Jesus, thank you for being the new Moses, ascending a mountain, giving us a new law. Lord, thank you for your your kingdom, which is always coming. I pray that in and as this church, we would be that kingdom especially for those in the world who have been rejected, cast out, who are suffering, just longing for God to make things right. Thank you, Jesus, for beginning that process and help us to join with you in your kingdom work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.